So Aldo is here from Brazil. Um, he was in PSTU, which is the Unified Workers Socialist Party. Um, and he is a member of PSOL, um, Party for Socialism and Liberty, and um, also part of the MTCT, the Homeless Workers Movement. Um, and Paulo is part of Quebec Solidaire, and Aaron has been doing a lot of Greek solidarity work and has been following very closely for many years. So, is there an order that you prefer? Out of nowhere. Okay. Should we go? So, yeah. Sure. So, basically, the way that I divided this was I think that there are three big questions with regards to the Workers' Party in Brazil. So, the first question is Was the Workers' Party an independent working class party? Was it ever this? The second question would be um, In government, did PT change its class nature, evolving from a working class party or a social democratic party? to a more popular organization with a less weaker class identity. And third, what will happen to PT uh, in the current situation? I mean, with Lula in prison, will PT turn to the left? Will it return to its origins, as it's usually put in the debate? I'm going to try to do each one every five minutes. So you can watch it. Okay. First of all, was PT an independent class, an independent working class party? This debate is very important with regards to characterization of PT because um, you can say that there are like three origins for the Workers' Party. One would be the Catholic Church, the other one would be the trade union movement, and the third would be the Trotskyist movement that organized within PT. But definitely the most important element was the trade union movement. So basically you have somewhere in between 1978 Eight and 1980, um, the biggest strike wave and uh, movements of organized, especially like metal workers, uh, oil and gas, um, and just manual industrial workers in Brazil. And this process um, has as its main leader Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Lula. Now, what is the relation between Lula and the and the working class uprising that he will lead? and that will lead to the creation of PT. So a big part of the debate to understand what Lula was is that you had in, during this period two, two, two currents within the trade union movement. One was what were called the authentic unionists and the other what we would call the, the opposition movement. So basically the opposition movement was, well, you had the strike, you had like, um, since the military dictatorship in 1964, um, you had a strong presence of the Communist Party in most of the trade unions in the country and basically what the military dictatorship did was it got rid of, the le of, of communist unionists and it put in its people to lead the unions, to lead the unions. And actually this is where Lula comes from. So um, the metal workers union in São Bernardo do Campo um, used to be run by the Communist Party. In 64, uh, the dictatorship puts a guy called Paulo Vidal to take over the unions and to apply like a concept of business unionism. And Lula was part of this group and he eventually substitutes Paulo Vidal to become the leader of the union. So when the workers um, strike, strikes break out in 78 in Scania factory, so Lula will go to the door of the factory and say, comrades, uh, stop striking, everyone go back home. There's actually a, a story where like the, the workers actually try to get Lula and Lula has to run away in a van because uh, this was like a real working class up uprising. So you had a sector of 
the leadership of the, of the actual leadership of this movement as part of the construction of Fitim. But a part of like this, what would have been the trade, what is like, what was the trade union bureaucracy? It relocates during the strike wave. So basically, Lula, who initially starts trying to hold down or hold back the strikes, he changes his position and becomes the, strike, the leader of the strikes. So the strike that he opposed, because of his location as a trade union bureaucrat, he leads and he comes into conflict with the military. So the military actually arrests him. And this is sort of where, let's say, Lula is created. But mm. the, the big question is, I mean, when it comes to an independent working class organization is, well, but this comes from the state apparatus. So these unions, they were never part of the opposition. So they come from the regime to a certain extent. So um, a very big debate that you had within the Trotskyist movement was basically how to characterize this process. Um, specifically, and I think the reason why it's important, to, the reason why the Trotskyists had such an important role in building PT was because basically the communist parties, they were against the creation of a working class organization or a separate working class organization because they believed that it was necessary to build the bourgeois democratic party, which was Pemi de Bé. Um, so basically, both PCDB and PCB um, and a part of the left that, that, that goes to the armed struggle will be against building PT. Within the Trotskyists, so there are like three important Trotskyist currents that build PT. Okay. Um, the Lambertists, the Mandalists, and the Mudenoites. So basically, starting off with the Lambertists, they were initially the, the, the Trotskyist group that was most critical and most against the construction of Pitim. Mm. Somewhere in the 80s, they changed radically their position. They joined Pitim, they joined the majoritarian group of Lula, and they become like the caters that will sustain like um, very important parts of the government as well as like Lula's personal apparatus. So his personal secretary, his translator, like a, a lot of like his personal group comes from the Lambertist tradition. So um, the Mandalists, which would be like the other like sort of traditional fourth international tradition, um, they will continue in Petén, they will kind of dissolve. Um, but they will also like be important part of, 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 of the Lula of the Lula group. And the third Trotskyist tradition, which are the Morenoites, They'll always, they'll always, they always had like a more critical understanding of the relation between Lula and the trade unions, and therefore, um, they're they're the sectors that are going to organize what will be eventually PSOL and PSTU. Mm -hmm. So both PSOL and PSTU are like different splits within like a very specific South American Trotskyist tradition, and um, the big debate is like the class nature of the split. So how do you describe Pesson, PSTU with regards to PT? Well, basically, like PT between 89 and 2002, which is when Lula gets elected president, um, it has as its electoral base industrial workers, students, middle class professionals, and organized peasants. After 2002, with the first during Lula's first re-election in 2006, this is where a lot of this changes. So when PT had its first corruption scandal, which happens in 2005. A very big part of the middle class, which was supportive of it, it kind of leaves the coalition and turns towards the right. And at the same time, the very poor, especially in the northeast, but also in the big city peripheries, they kind of join the PT electoral bloc. So a lot of what is going to be what is going to be debated in like Brazilian Marxism as well. PT is originally an industrial working class party, a social democratic organization, 
and it turns into something else because of its mass peasant base and because I think there's a lot of exaggeration in this. Um, but at the same time, this process happens at the same time that you have the splits of, especially the Pissol split, in which the issue of corruption is very important. So, and this is a student with a, this is a split with a very strong student base. So it's very middle class in its split, and this expresses itself in the 2006 election, where PSOL, PSTU, and PCB, the Communist Party, they all launched Eloisa Lena as a candidate, and Eloisa Lena um, has mostly votes amongst the middle class, mm -hmm. and disproportionately, the higher you go toward in the middle class, the bigger the amount of votes for mm -hmm. Eloisa Lena. So. This is also related to the fact that, like, um, when Lula comes into government, he attacks public workers, and he, he has he has this like reform on pension funds, which puts public public sector workers in opposition to PT and in opposition to the trade union bureaucracy, and these will be an important part of structuring PSOL. So this is this is a bit of like the almost uh, like like. Uh, the original sin of Pissol, in many ways. Um, because you had a split with PT, where the mass of the working class, of the organized working class, and of the poor state on one side, and the middle class on the other. Hmm. So, uh, with regards to specifically, with regards to the economy, so basically you're gonna have during, during the Lula government, uh, Brazil's gonna be reorganized in the international division of labor below China, sending commodities to China and buying industrialized goods. And this process will accelerate the industrialization in Brazil. I think that it's important to, when you, we talk about the industrialization in Brazil, it's different from when you speak about it in United States or Europe, because it's not related to gains in productivity. It's related to deindustrialization and shifting of the industry to, to China. So basically what you had during the Lula government was, well, in the beginning, especially like in the second half, you have like concrete deindustrialization, reduction of industry and the proportion of the GDP. And basically, um, this that you, was the organized sector of the Workers' Party. I mean, it's not that only that PT kind of lost its insertion within, within the industrial working class, but its own policies of deindustrialization led to a reduction in the number of the workers, mm. of the industrial workers in the country. Uh, this is very important because when Lula gets arrested, he goes to the Metal Workers' Union yeah. before his arrest. Yeah. And what happens is all the time he, looks, he stays looking out of the window and he's always saying, why aren't there people here? Right. Because um, basically the working class didn't show up before he got arrested. And one of the reasons why the working class didn't show up was basically because it was numerically reduced by deindustrialization. Mm. So, and then uh, the debate with regards to, to, to the labor market within the PT government. Um, so basically you had for a period of 10 years, during two years, every, during, every year you had two, two million jobs, two extra million jobs. So PT created 20 million jobs. But the problem with regards to these jobs that were created was that the average salary of 95% of these jobs was up to one and a half minimum wages, most of them in the, in the sector services, in private sector, and with high level of, of, of rotation and high level of, of, of industrial accidents. So basically what happened was, was that you had within um, the services sector an increase in, in formalization of labor, uh, and this had a tremendous impact on the economy. And at the same time, the organized sectors of the working class, they had every year, they would have salary wage increases higher than, than inflation because um, of specifically like the, the tripartite agreements that you would have where you would negotiate salaries between the states, the bosses, 
and, and, and the workers' representatives. Um, all of this created a specific dynamic in the economy in which the very poor got richer. And at the same time, because neoliberalism was strengthened, the commodity boom, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. the upper bourgeoisie also got richer. And at the same time, the middle class got squashed. Um, you didn't create, because of the industrialization, you didn't create um, middle class jobs. Like, uh, also in the services sectors, there was precarization of middle class jobs. And alongside with this, you had a serious problem, which is services got much more expensive, especially for the middle class. So Brazil has a strong like uh, slave tradition and tradition of slavery. So services and services for the houses and for the families, um, they were very cheap. With a social protection network on this on on services, just the middle the standard of the middle class gets much worse. And this will take us to June 2013. Um, there's a big debate, I think, that, that's going on. Uh, you know, like, what happens when we have, or we want a workers' movement, or we want, like, a workers' government, or a left government, and what's going to happen when you have, um, and within the left government, we would like to have an uprising. So June 2013 is kind of that. Mm -hmm. So you had a left-wing government, and, 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 and in many ways, the left-wing went out in the streets. The problem was that it was very middle-class based. And in, in, in a few weeks, the social movement that was like student-based and, 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 and very radical and with strong presence of the Trotskyists in the far left was quickly substituted by an anti-corruption social movement, um, more based in the higher escalons of the middle class, but still very much a middle class social movement. And the role that Pete had all along from June 2013 when, when the movement goes to the streets is to demobilize. So it works to demobilize the workers and trying to make agreements um, with different sectors of the bourgeoisie. Um, and the result that you're gonna have in the end of the day is Bolsonaro. Um, the coup, the 2015-16 coup, and I think that when we discuss uh, on the issue specifically of uh, the pink tide, um, the coup and the, the fall of the pink tide, I think that on the debate of the pink tide, there's a lot of um, focus on countries like Ecuador, like Bolivia, especially the poor, more backward countries in, in South America. And countries like Brazil and Argentina, where you do have like an industrial working class that had like a central role in this process, like this is always downplay. Mm -hmm. And and also and there's like this permanent like looking for like other social classes that were responsible for the process other than the industrial working class. And I can't really understand what happened in, in Venezuela and how Venezuela sustained itself without the role that Brazil played and the Brazilian working class played, even before Lula. So, for example, during the transition between Fernando Henrique Cardoso and Lula, you had the 2002 oil strikes in Venezuela, which brought the country to a standstill. It was Fernando Henrique Cardoso and the social liberal party, PSDB, that sent oil from Brazil to maintain Venezuela going. Not even Lula, not even the Workers' Party. So. And the role, th th this is something important to look at, and I think that's another reason why it's important to talk about Brazil and uh, uh, Argentina when it comes to discussing the, the pink tide. It's just that it's much easier to extract lessons, for, including for the American left. So, I mean, in places like Venezuela or Bolivia, like issues like LGBT movement, women's movement, and, and, and anti-legalization movement, and all, all of this stuff, you don't have that in Venezuela, you don't have that in Bolivia. 
Like, one thing that really caused my... Obviously, Bolivia is different with regard to the issue of drugs because of the cocaine and the cocalero movement. But, um, obviously, uh, uh, one thing that really caused my attention in Venezuela was... uh, uh, I I remember giving an interview in a radio, which was a Chavista radio, and I think it was like repeatedly used, like, homophobic expressions. I'm like, this would be net. This is unimaginable in Brazil. Right. Like, unimaginable. And um, to close, I think that it's important that also, like, uh, when we debate the coup, that we might, like, if we have like, time in the interview, in the after with this, but um, the sexist element in the coup, and specifically the issue of Juma Usafi, mm-hmm. and, and, and how. Um, the right-wing middle class really mobilized on sexist uh, issues, and so and I think this is also very important to debate as part of like the debates with regards to the pink type, because one thing that was always put in Brazil um, was that only a workers' organization and only a social democratic work, working-class based movement could um, have as its candidate a woman president and elect a woman president, and this was only possible because of the class, the social classes that supported this. Um, so yeah, I just 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 to conclude, I just think that less of you know like the good left, bad left that we think Venezuela and Brazil and so on and so forth. I think that we should see it much more as um, different. First, as reformist experiences, like even if one was more radical than the other, they were very similar in, in, in their content in many ways. And second, that the class content in Brazil and to a lesser extent in Argentina um, was much more advanced than the experiences that you had in Bolivia and Venezuela and so on and so forth. So this is, I think, one of the reasons why it's important also to look at Brazil from the perspective of the same time. Thank you so much. Um, yes. <laughs> Aaron, should I let you know at sure. 10? Yeah, let me know 10. 10. So, <clears throat> let me pull this thing up. I probably bit off more than I can chew here, and I decided not to, I think the initial imp- imp- impulse to, for me to talk was to talk about um, Greece vis-a-vis the questions of, of, of the broad party experience. Um, but I think there's been a lot of discussion of that, and so I want to do something a little bit different, and maybe it's, you'll at least get the sense of where I'm going. But um, So before I come to the question of the broad party, I want to situate the discussion, particularly as it relates to the strategic dynamics for the revolutionary and radical left in Western Europe and the Americas. Uh, obviously, the question of party form can't be taken in the abstract, and political circumstances vary significantly from country to country and exact tactics have to be concretely determined, et cetera. Um, all kinds of factors are involved. And one of the frustrations with, one of my frustrations with the debates over the last 10 years when it came to arguments which sought to generalize from the breadth of experience from the PT or the NPA or Refondazione all the way to Syriza and Podemos more recently was the failure to give proper weight to the specific national conditions, both with regards to the broader national political conjuncture, the specificities of their national history, and with regards to the relative states of the left in various countries. So on either side of the argument, one heard, um, one either tended to hear the need in all circumstances to build independent revolutionary organization in the traditional kind of Trotskyist Leninist sense um, outside of the broader formations, or, and then, or an argument for the need in all cases to block 
with forces to the right um, of revolutionaries while ignoring how this was to be done. And some of these arguments you heard coming out of the Fourth International um, made on inter in international viewpoint more, more strongly a number of years back. Um, so, and while all ignoring how this was to be done and who the other forces were, and how, so the real differences between the launch of the NPA with its cadre base and the old LCR versus Refundazione de Lincoln, Syriza, which all involved unity with formations out of the historic Communist Party tradition, albeit with very different histories, Euro-Communist versus mm -hmm. former Stalinist. Um, and so, so the specific, I'm just repeating, the specific dynamics I think are much more important than any generalized failure or limits or celebration of the broad party form. So I just want to say that at the start. And then I, and then I want to situate the discussion in the context of a, of a discussion about the present moment and the crisis of neoliberalism and the periodization of neoliberalism that comes from Neil Davidson and others. Um, so I want to argue generally for the particular importance of the revolutionary left to remain coherently organized, whether within or without a broader formation, albeit organized in a way that allows maximum engagement with the broader class, the social movements and the left. And this means in particular emphasis on avoiding sectarian errors and understanding the, the current moment both as one of crisis, extended crisis of, of neoliberalism, um, and relatedly the kind of polarization that we see internationally, mm -hmm. part of which means a kind of growth of a new left, but also very much a, a, a danger of a kind of, of right-wing alternative mm -hmm. to this crisis. Mm -hmm. So again, the question of particular party form has to start from the perspective of the particular historical conjuncture, the given regime of accumulation, and the perspectives of the national particularities and contingencies. So Neil, David, Neil Davidson, I, I don't have to spend a lot of time here, but he has a sort of, he periodizes the neoliberal um, period in, in kind of three parts. And I think it's important in to, under, to then situate the experiment of the broad party form in the context of, of this periodization. Um, what is clear is that since 2007, we have broadly entered a moment of crisis for the neoliberalism, neoliberal regime. And what follows is in motion, but the crisis is manifest again by growing social and economic crisis precarity, to use the loaded term and the most significant political polarization that we have seen in the West since the 1930s. Again, this has meant that both the growth of the new left and broader sectors resisting the neoliberal regime and the new and profoundly dangerous far right being organized mainly along the axis of racial or ethnic nationalism, which seeks to contest as in the 1930s as a political alternative and an answer to this crisis. So in a context of the largest mass displacement of this is in a context of the largest mass displacement of human population mm -hmm. caused and fostered by both the regimes of neoliberalism, but also the broader crisis in global capitalism and the concomitant environmental crisis, mm -hmm. which is both worsened and also cause of that displacement. Um, so coming back to the periodization, the, Davidson and others talk about the period from roughly 1979 to 1991, which is a vanguard neoliberalism entailing a strategy to restore national capitalist profitability out of the crisis in the early 1970s, centered on attacking the strength of organized labor. Davidson, in particular, writes of three chronological steps. First, the kind of enforcement of mass unemployment. Think of the Volcker shock in 1981. Uh, Mike, Mike McCarthy, I went back and looked at it, had a quite good article in Jacobin talking about the sort of specifics of the Volcker shock and the dynamics there. Um, second, decisive confrontations led by kind of kind of the the, the the vanguard neoliberals, Thatcher and Reagan, if you want to think, 
um, decisive confrontations with state-backed, the public sector, state-backed employers, um, and important unionized sectors, the postal workers in Canada, PATCO, the air traffic controllers in the U.S., um, and it's, et cetera. There's other examples. Minor, most notably for us, the mining, the miners' uh, strike in, in Britain, and then the establishment of new productive capacities um, and sometimes new industries in new geographical areas with lower non-existent levels of unionization. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, is that me? Uh, um, secondly, he talks about the, the period from 1992 to 2007, which is which is beginning the period where you start to see the emergence of the experiments with the with the with the broad party form, um, and this is a period where you see the political adaptation to a new liberal reality by the by the former liberal and social democratic parties. So, within a 10-year period between the fall of the Berlin Wall in '89 and the battle in Seattle in, in 1999, all of the vanguard regimes of reorientation are replaced by parties um, uh, or, or politicians who represent historically kind of reformist tradition, the social democratic tradition of the mass workers organizations. This is a critically important moment to look at more closely, and we don't have a lot of time here to do that. Maybe we can discuss it. It's a period by, marked by the absolute retreat of the historic representatives of the mass working class mm -hmm. um, and the mass reformist parties away from the politics of solidarity and even a, an ostensible commitment to ameliorating the worst impacts of capitalism, to a commitment to social liberalism based on active endorsement and promotion of the free market and the broader neoliberal regimes, uh, buoyed by a stated commitment to so-called individual freedom um, and the celebration of rights of the individual in the marketplace, um, the equality of consumers, et cetera. So this so-called third way, Tony Blair, uh, Clinton, um, were emblematic of this period, but for purposes of this discussion, What's important is how the politics of social liberalism came to constrain and define the political spectrum, where the space between the center left and the center right in most countries was diminished in the very possibility of an alternative, right? Mm -hmm. Tina, et cetera, were openly questioned. And, where even, and even where economic growth was maintained, uh, it was done on the backs of the destruction and attacks on the fabric of working class life, the organs of potential resistance were systematically weakened in the, in the face of the onslaught of the market and the capitulation of historic organizations of the working class to this regime. Um, and so again, this is where you start to see the emergence of the attempts at broad parties. What I want to say is it's, it's, it grows out of a kind of moment generally of positions of weakness and defensiveness um, where you see these attempts. The final period starting in 2007 is where you start to have the crisis of neoliberalism where we remain today, um, marked by efforts to deal with the acute crisis um, that began with the financial crisis, but fails to address the systematic and chronic limits of the, of the economic regime. Um, so the crisis continues, even if, uh, even if there's in the short term been restored profitability by bailing out the banks and financial sectors, where the indebtedness of the banks and financial sectors, um, which were the immediate cause of the 2007 collapse, are then passed on to the, so to government, to the sovereign, to gov mm -hmm. become governmental debt. And in turn, um, requires a kind of a, a renewed uh, austerity attack, um, which saw mass unemployment, mass cuts in the social wage, mass loss of home ownership in the US and Britain. Um, and when profitability was restored, we're at the end of this sort of most recent cycle, which is something we could talk about, is based on so-called monetary easing, the flooding of the economy with money to incite growth, 
but at the cost of a return to speculative investment, major indebtedness, now located at the level of the household and individual. If you go look at the levels of indebtedness, mm -hmm. um, in both cases, uh, the increases have been in market in, the, in, that, in this period. So in other words, the fundamentals of capitalist overproduction, which led to the crisis, have not been addressed. And the results, while, while sustained, while seeing kind of ostensible growth over the last few years, is growth limited to the very top of society and increased, you see increased polarization and social crisis. So again, in this context, we're beginning to see the slow rebirth of the left and an explicitly social, socialist left, driven by the extreme contradictions of, of the system and the massive social and economic crises manifesting in different ways in different countries. So unsurprisingly, um, the vehicles for this new left are those which have promised a road, a kind of an immediate road to power to address and ameliorate the worst of the impacts of these crises. And on the right, simultaneously, we see the growth of ethno-racial nationalism, which locates the problem, the roots of the crisis, within the recent appearance of the ethnic and racial other. I'd be interested to talk about like the way in which the, mobil the kind of mobilization of, of a kind of masculinist or kind of anti-feminist politic mm -hmm. by Bolsonaro, Brazilian right is tied into a kind of reassertion of Brazilian national identity or something. But from Trump to the Tory party's leadership over Brexit to Le Pen, Salvini, Orban, and similarly throughout the Nordic region in Eastern Europe, which we don't talk enough about, um, this is the register through which the right-wing alternative is posed. Whatever names we wish to give it, it's profoundly dangerous, not only to migrants and the perceived others, but also to the hopes of the renewed working class and socialist resistance. In some ways, this should not be surprising. And I, and I started with the periodization because I think it's important to think about where the process began and where we are in the process and what we're facing. So it, it, this should not be surprising as one of the key features of the last 20 plus years of neoliberalism and global capitalism and its concomitant environmental crisis has been the mass displacement of populations. And so the kind of, there's a, the, there's a way in which the kind of, uh, the, the visible experience of the crisis in the last 20 years for, for many people. And Neil wrote a piece, Neil Davidson has a piece that he put out last year in Capital and Class looking at the question of migration, specifically in Britain, which is really interesting as a way to think about how the question of migration fits, not just simply as a kind of a, a, a trope for the right to mobilize pro-Brexit, whatever, but also how, how it figures among sectors of the working class who voted pro-Brexit, but then voted Labour. And it did not do so necessarily on the basis of a kind of racial kind yeah. of way in which the politics were mobilized by the, by the far right in Britain. Um, so the, just to say, the UN estimate, I think from last year, 2017, was that between 97 and 2017, there have been approximately 240 million migrants um, in, in that period, approximately 10% of whom are refugees and are asylum seekers. Um, so the global level of forced displacement across international borders actually continues to rise over the last few years, and by the end of 2016, um, the total number of refugees and asylum seekers in the world was estimated at like close to 26 million, um, about, and 64% of whom landed in high-income countries, the countries we're talking about. So the question of how the left addresses this question and the related questions of nationalism and national sovereignty is intimately tied to our, to our ability to offer an alternative in the face of the resurgent right. It is a matter of principles for sure, i.e. basic commitment to common humanity, solidarity, um, the right of 
not just capital to move, but of people and workers to move, but it's also a fundamental matter of strategy and tactics for the ultimate success of the nascent socialist movement. And it is here that our capacity to indicate, to articulate an independent line from the parallel resurgence of national reformism is so important. This is a case study on the absolute need to maintain independent revolutionary, current independent revolutionary organization. And so I don't have a lot of time, but I want to call attention to the debate. I want to call, I just want to point quickly to a series of examples. So the debate around, the, around free movement in the context of the yeah. Brexit debate is very important. The equivocation of the Labor Party leadership on this question, and Richard Seymour, who's writing generally on Brexit, I think, is in, have been indispensable, has recently, recently written about this. Mm -hmm. This is a debate about making free movement of labor within any post-Brexit arrangement mm -hmm. um, with the EU a red line or not for labor mm -hmm. on agreeing or not to soft Brexit, et cetera. Notably, this does not touch on the question of open borders right. or free movement outside for yeah. refugees and migrants outside of Europe. In fact, labor has largely committed itself to remaining in the bounds of the current internal EU regime on the issue, mm -hmm. which has led to the death of thousands, tens of thousands in the waters yeah. of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. We should pay attention, obviously, to Bernie Sanders and what mm -hmm. the implications are for his opposition to open borders, yeah. not as a momentary specific policy difference or problem, but as a fundamental question that is repeated throughout um, it's a question that's facing the whole left, yeah. and it's a question that's absolutely central to our ability to represent, to, fund, to articulate a challenge. So in this context, you know, happening in the context of Trump's using this question, obviously, to ramp up murderous racial and anti-immigrant violence, both from within the, and without the U.S. state. Melon Shaw, um, you could talk about the debate within Delinka. And now Stehen, the, the Wagenach, on, on that time, you could talk about, there's interesting debates happening within France uh, in Samiz, um, because I think Mélenchon has actually started to move in a way um, to better calibrate this question. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's the opportunity and the ability of the revolutionary left to bring pressure to bear is very important um, uh, uh, in terms of the specific position that Mélenchon's taken. He's recently thrown out of France and Somis, some of the worst kind of right-wing, kind of pro-nationalist populist um, figures within that movement. But this split is happening everywhere. And I just, I'll end here. I think the most important place probably in the moment in terms of the European revolutionary left is Spain. Because I think the contours in Spain are a little bit different. There's certainly a question of migration and immigration um, but the, the national question and the question of yeah. the Spanish, the Spanish state vis-a-vis -vis how the left is going to respond is profoundly important. You can, I don't think you can understand the current split within Podemos mm -hmm. um, without understanding that, without understanding the Catalan question, without understanding the rise of, of Ciudadanos and even further right-wing forces in Spain, and the ability of, of anti-capitalista to maintain um, uh, revolutionary, maintain independence and organizational um, independence in the context of this is, is critically important. So I'll end there, but this is kind of what I want to push towards. All right, um, I'll speak rather briefly about the Quebec Solidar. Unfortunately, my presentation won't be as in-depth, and uh, thank you for bringing that depth. Uh, but I'll talk uh, quickly about what's going on uh, in Quebec. So just to 
uh, put into context, since the 1970s, there's basically been just two main political parties uh, that monop monopolize is perhaps not the right word, but uh, two main parties in Quebec's uh, provincial elections. On the one hand, uh, the multiculturalist Liberal Party of Quebec, which is very similar to the Liberal Party of Canada, and on the other hand, the nationalist Parti Québécois. So for a long time, um, uh, Parti Québécois was considered the only left option in the sense that, well, there was only really just two parties that could ever go to power, uh, despite having a center or even center-right platform. Um, so the, the only option, if you were a leftist, was to vote for the Parti Québécois, who had some positions uh, favorable to, for example, maintaining um, the, uh, the welfare state and things like that, but without really getting into um, an actual radical program besides the program of separatism, which is also uh, what has always made Quebec politics very complicated, uh, which is to say that on the one hand you have you know, the left-right uh, struggle, and on the other hand you have the federalist uh, separatist struggle, and they kind of um, intersected in that way for a while. Uh, the Parti Québécois was also the party that uh, held two referendums in 1980 and 1995, the second referendum having been lost by a margin of 0.58% with 94% uh, rate of participation in the population. So Quebec Solidaire appears in this context uh, in 2006 as uh, the fusion of two left-wing organizations. On the one hand, a coalition of uh, different socialist tendencies, and on the other hand, an anti-globalization feminist organization. So Quebec Q, uh, QS could present itself as the truly leftist alternative uh, to uh, the Parti Québécois and every other party. Um, and the Parti Québécois having also been, uh, during its brief time in power, responsible for a number of neoliberal attacks on the working class during the late 1990s, um, before veering into outright xenophobic nationalism, uh, the culmination of which was the proposal of the uh, Quebec Charter of Values in 2013, which uh, openly discriminated against uh, religious minorities, um, banning them from, um, banning religious symbols in public sector jobs, and actually banning them from receiving um, public services if their faces were covered. Um, so, after having had uh, two seats in Parliament for several years, the last election in 2018 saw uh, QS rise to 10 elected members. This is out of 125. The election itself was a monumental shift in Quebec's electoral politics, since the Parti Québécois, which again was the only competitor to the Liberal Party, uh, dropped down to 10 seats. Uh, the Liberal Party lost 39, and the more recently formed centre-right Nationalist Party, the Coalition Avenir Québec, won by a majority. So, uh, this, and this brings Ke uh, QS to a critical conjuncture. In fact, the Parti Québécois has now lost one member of the National Assembly, placing Quebec Solidaire as the second opposition party, and uh, the only viable leftist option, mm -hmm. and the only separatist party with uh, a future at all. So, uh, the question this leaves us with, obviously for any progressive or social democrat favorable to QS, this seems uh, like, this is undoubtedly just very exciting, it seems very positive. However, as revolutionaries, I think we have to actually question uh, whether or not QS can be understood as a broad leftist party and whether it's a revolutionary socialist party and what obviously the role, uh, the role of the revolutionary left should be within that uh, party. So I'm going to draw on the debate within the Fourth International and broad left parties and I'm going to put forward three questions to try to answer that question, of, uh, to try to qualify uh, QS. The first one is the relation of QS to institutions uh, and to the state. So one of the most positive and central aspects of uh, Quebec Solidaire, what makes it encouraging, is that it stands as a party that has no formal or informal links to bourgeois public, political uh, forces. Or it really is a party that is completely autonomous. Uh, it is not historically grounded in any other, um, like rooted in any other uh, bourgeois political organization. It really just relies on itself. Um, Given that it's a separatist party, there have been many uh, separatists in Quebec who have called for alliances with the Parti Québécois, claiming that it would be worth getting uh, uh, either 
by uh, creating an alliance or a sort of electoral pact so that we could create a majority and uh, call a third referendum. Uh, fortunately, systematically, these propositions have been refused mm -hmm. in the base in Quebec Solidaire, and it's, it's, the base has been pretty upfront about the fact that this is because the Parti Québécois is seen as a, not only as not really being serious yeah. about separatism, uh, not only because it's a neoliberal party, but because it's an outright racist party that yeah. has outright racist positions. Um, so this serves to demonstrate that the party does have a capacity to maintain its autonomy, and it's very encouraging. On the other hand, um, with the, the question of the relation to institutions, the state, um, since up, up until and since the last campaign, mobilizing efforts within QS have shifted towards a mostly electoral approach, drawing on the tactics of the Bernie Sanders campaign, etc. So, um, for many members within the party structure, uh, this strategy of building a, a, a building the electoral politics of QS, is justified by the current weakness of Quebec's social movements. So this brings me to the second question, uh, QS's relation to social movements. Um, an often repeated slogan within QS is that it is a party of the ballot box and party of the street, which implies a dual approach to building a left political alternative. Uh, as previously mentioned, recent efforts have mostly focused on the ballot box. So again, this is because there are members of the party's leadership that believe that current social movements in Quebec uh, are weak. And it raises the difficult question of what kind of relationship we want to have with social movements that are so disorganized. So if we were to get too involved in trying to organize uh, the left, not only could we come across as perhaps you know, coming in and trying to just get votes or try to have a top-down approach to these movements, which is, which is not what, uh, what would work, um, but it would also run the risk of creating movements that are dependent on Quebec City yeah. If Quebec City were to succeed and win an election, uh, it would inevitably face the pressures of uh, the international bourgeoisie, uh, which all leftist governments are subjected mm -hmm. to. And if these social movements are dependent on QS, they will not be able to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, QS needs to be able to depend on social mm -hmm. movements to resist those attacks against the leftist government. Mm -hmm. So with these fears in mind, um, there's a tension that exists within QS. Should we focus on building social movements and getting involved, or should we focus on building the party, both electorally and in terms of its program? So this brings me to the program. In the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, QS embarked on a 10-year process of redefining its platform around an anti-capitalist ecological perspective. So thanks to the efforts of um, socialist elements within the party, QS's platform has maintained this radical perspective. So the socialist elements of its platform include nationalizing key sectors of the economy, creating a public bank, allowing for worker control of businesses in certain situations, such as uh, if a business threatens to offshore its operations. That being said, the program also uh, leaves room for private ownership of businesses, particularly in the case of small to medium-sized businesses. So they kind of, it, it's kind of a mixed economy approach. Uh, obviously with a stronger welfare state and uh, what I mentioned, the nationalization of uh, certain sectors. So economically speaking, the program is camped somewhere between a green social democracy and moving beyond capitalism. Moving beyond capitalism is explicitly stated in the party's uh, platform, but it also leaves room for private uh, businesses, which is a bit of a contradiction. So while, yeah, uh, another contradiction. <laughs> um, so, while there are radical economic and eco uh, ecological pr propositions that are being discussed by the radical left, QS doesn't always you know, go for uh, the more radical perspectives, but there are still forces in the party that are fighting to change this, um, for the better or for the worse, to uh, try to either bring it towards the center or bring it towards uh, an even more radical leftist platform. So, so far these attacks uh, against the socialist elements of the platform have been fought off. Uh, one of the recent examples of this came during the last National Council, um, I mentioned the ban on religious symbols that the PQ proposed. 
this made its way into Quebec Solidaire under the form of like a sort of compromise position where uh, it was claimed that it would be better to ban religi uh, the religious symbols for certain positions uh, within the state, which is uh, police officers, judges, and uh, correctional officers, on the basis that they have a position of authority and that the, if they were to wear religious symbols, it could be seen as a sort of... Uh, 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 contrary to the secularism of the, uh, of the government. And this was rejected uh, by 90% of party delegates uh, mm -hmm. during the last National Council, which puts Quebec Solidaire in a position of saying no bans on mm -hmm. religious symbols. Um, and interestingly enough, this is the status quo in Quebec. There is no yeah. ban, and yet this is seen as like an, kind of an extremist position right. for QS mm -hmm. to have taken. It's mm -hmm. one of the ironic things about <laughs> um, So just last week, another encouraging example is that, um, well, because the, well, the, the ban on religious symbols is being carried out by the current majority government, yeah. including um, a ban on religious symbols worn by teachers, which yeah. is obviously a massive and yeah. direct attack on working class, and particularly Muslim yeah. women. Yeah. Um, the several um, several uh, leaders on the municipal municipal level declared that they would not follow and they would not obey and not reinforce the ban on religious symbols. This led the uh, National Assembly to propose uh, to put forward a motion, which was uh, kind of, I guess, a proto-fascist type of no motion, saying that reasserting the int uh, the um, territorial integrity of the provincial government, basically saying, wow. yeah. We, uh, we run the place. <laughs> and this was rejected by QS on the basis that it, um, well, they actually proposed an amendment, which is, I guess, kind of a, like a, it was a compromise in its, in its own sense that they did not oppose this motion on the basis that they encouraged municipalities not to obey the law, but on the basis that this would um, be contrary to the UN uh, Declaration on Indigenous Peoples' Territorial Sovereignty. So they proposed an amendment saying, uh, you, would, you should recognize the territorial sovereignty of indigenous peoples. The amendment was rejected and therefore Quebec Solidaire uh, did not vote in favor of the motion, which could be seen as perhaps a political move uh, mm -hmm. to try to avoid uh, you know, actually calling for um, municipalities to not obey the law, but mm -hmm. um, in the end we have this, um, we have this result. So, so the, um, with all these questions in mind, uh, is Quebec Solidaire a broad left party? Uh, I think for most militants within Quebec Solidaire and around, the question is rather, does it have the potential to become the broad left party we need? And can the revolutionary forces in Quebec make this happen? So there's several encouraging aspects that I brought up. Uh, the autonomy from bourgeois political forces, its rejection of alliances with them, its plan to build sovereignty through a constituent assembly, which is mm -hmm. a different form of, uh, of separatism than the Parti Québécois, mm -hmm. which proposes a republican, more mm -hmm. top-down approach. Uh, its recognition of indigenous rights, its stance against the oppression of religious minorities, the strong insistence within Quebec back on environmental issues, and certain elements of its economic program which are indeed uh, uh, anti-capitalist. Mm -hmm. uh, however, there are important weaknesses. First of all, the party's orientation towards electoral politics, its lack of a long-term strategy going beyond winning an election, uh, its sort of ambiguous relationship with social movements, and the fact that its platform remains mostly, I would qualify it as a green social democratic platform. So, overall, QS's approach to taking power um, is socialist on paper, but sort of more liberal in practice. Uh, and while there are recurring calls for fighting capitalism and fighting the rich, QS mostly identifies itself as a party of young people and of the 99%. Uh, as one comrade called it, socialism without Marxism. Uh, so, I'm going to finish up just um, looking at what the revolutionary left has been doing in Quebec City that. Uh, so, as I mentioned initially, one of the two organizations that merged to create QS was a coalition of socialist groups, so these people are now within Quebec said that. Mm -hmm. Since then, the revolutionary socialist uh, organizations in Quebec have had very little success. I'll take three examples. 
The first one is the FAS, the Front d'Action Socialiste, which um, after the 2012 student strikes, there were a lot of obviously radical, radicalized uh, young people who uh, were looking to form an organization and came together uh, to form the FAS. Uh, it brought together socialists from a variety of tendencies, anarchists, Marxists, uh, and was most notably involved in attempting a 2015 uh, general strike against austerity. Um, the organization had many interesting debates <laughs> and very bold perspectives about building the institutions of a socialist society to come, which was actually very interesting. But their main uh, weakness was that they had no perspectives on QS. And mm. what happened is that um, once the former student leader, Deputy Nandouz who was active in 2012, announced that he was uh, going to run within the party in 2017, about half the organization just took off for QS yep. and it, it collapsed. Uh, so it's representative of the fact that for a lot of radical militants, both within uh, the 2012 student movement and beyond, they're now working within QS, and this is largely due to the absence of a strong socialist organization within Quebec to rally them. Um, two other examples that I'll group together, uh, socialist alternative and socialist fight back. So leaving aside the other orthodox Marxist uh, uh, organizations in Quebec that are not worth mentioning, uh, Socialist Alternative, which is the Quebec chapter of the CWI, and Socialist Fightback, the Quebec chapter of the International Marxist Tendency, are the only important revolutionary socialist organizations in Quebec. Both have a long history of refusing to collaborate with QS on the grounds that it is a petit bourgeois party of left intellectuals. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any quotes, but I'm pretty sure I've heard this. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Socialist Fight Back actually has an explicitly anti-separatist position, uh, believing in the unity of the Canadian working class, and Socialist Alternative, on the other hand, uh, supports the separatist cause. Paradoxically, Socialist Fight Back has an official caucus within QS, but pretty much only uses it to set up tables and sell their newspaper, and um, until, uh, until recently, and Socialist Alternative had uh, positioned itself against any participation within QS up until 2018, uh, its last Congress, where it suddenly decided to change directions and encourage its members to get involved. So since then, both parties have become more involved within QS, mainly around the fight against the, uh, the ban on religious symbols. Uh, and I believe that their efforts have mostly been constructive in the sense mm -hmm. they have participated uh, positively. That being said, it's hard to see this as anything but opportunism on behalf of both organizations. They were completely uninvolved before. Mm -hmm. They were not in, in, implicated in building socialism within QS. And now they're kind of following along uh, to maintain a presence, I guess, within that movement. And the last example I'll bring up is the Réseau Eco-Socialiste. So this was a network of socialists within QS, so it was an official structure within Quebec Solidaire. They were involved in many struggles against uh, um, what I mentioned earlier, the attacks on the socialist elements of the program. Uh, they were also, they, they brought to fore the, the, the question on uh, the, the ban against uh, the ban on religious symbols. So they've been very proactive. However, the issue with the Réseau is that um, its members almost act as if they were individuals with loose affiliations. It doesn't right. really act as an organization. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for this is that it not only does it have a vague platform, but they only meet twice a year. So it makes it hard to understand what exactly the Réseau brings as an organization. So, um, in conclusion, uh, recently, members from all three of these groups have come together with the intent of building a new socialist organization, uh, mm -hmm. seeing that in Quebec, despite the tradition, the left tradition that we have, and the fact that everywhere there are new left parties uh, appearing, um, well, we, we should fill this gap, in fact. So, this is a new socialist organization which is basing itself, we're currently uh, working through the process of developing where we stand, but uh, currently could be said to have, uh, to be summarized as a sort of heterodox intersectional Marxist organization that wants to have a clear understanding of its position uh, in relation to QS. 
So as I mentioned, we've been meeting, uh, I'm, I'm part of this, <laughs> this group, we've been meeting on a regular basis uh, just to talk uh, of the politics of the organization. Ultimately, we would like to perhaps uh, launch the organization in early 2020. Uh, so the objective for this ultimately is to recreate a space in which socialists can meet, to organize as revolutionary socialists uh, within an organization that will neither get dissolved into QS, unless of course this would be the ideal thing to do, uh, nor so rigid in theory and practice that we would refuse to cooperate or try to you know, build a party uh, 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 which clearly presents, um, I'm, I'm sorry, um, we wouldn't... <laughs> We would not be so rigid as to just, you know, organize on our own, but actually recognize that Quebec Study Dive presents right. critical opportunities for yeah. building socialism, uh, either within or beyond the current party structure. That's all. Thank you so much.